Hello there. This week, I'm talking to Gilmar Vent, who is a business design strategist and principal of GW & Co, an award-winning creative agency based in London. Gilmar helps transform businesses by aligning brand strategy and culture. And it's these areas that we explore in depth in our conversation. Here's my interview with Gilmar Vent. Enjoy. We Got This showcases individuals and organizations that create people-focused workplace cultures to help it become the norm rather than the exception. It's something that will require a mindset shift and probably not something that any of us can do alone. But together, together, we got this. The usual question to start off with is when you were little, what did you want it to be when you grew up? Yes. And it's a very difficult question <laughs> because apart from the policeman, fireman, knighted shiny armor, I didn't really have anything. I wanted to be good at something and I felt I would be good at something, but I didn't have a vision to, to do anything really. And I, I stumbled into design I, and I did that because I fell in love with letter shapes. Somebody told me about the Frankfurt Book Fair and I went along and I saw all these wonderful books and there was a book on typefaces and I opened it up and I thought, this is beautiful. This was a last century, so we didn't have, you know, computers were just about, you know, seeing the light of day in the classrooms or in the universities. So there was still typesetting, you know, with large complicated methods. And there were these catalogs that had all the lowercase little A's. And there was one in particular for the typeface called Granby Elephant that I fell in love with. It turned out that that was one of the predecessors to the London Underground typeface. Anyway, it got me hooked and I got to study, found a place where um, a very eminent person called Hans-Peter Wilberg He's not very well known in the English speaking world because he didn't speak English, but in the German world, uh, he was one of the key figures in the 20th century book design that got me into book design. And I studied with him and you could say everything I learned about design and learned through typography. I then designed books for a number of years, very successfully, not just the inside and the outside. It was the whole identity. How do you create a new book publishing house, how should they go to market? And that was for about four or five years. I then came to a point with my lovely now wife, we'd studied together, got to know each other. She wanted to be in London. I didn't want to be in London. I wanted to make books in Germany, but at some stage you realize it's either all in or it's going to drift apart. And that was the time when I also had done. I designed a fair amount of books and felt maybe I needed some change. And so I came to London for a year and 21 years later, I'm still here. I can, I can relate to that in terms of going somewhere, coming to the UK for university and then um, a decade later, still, still being, like, still remaining there. Your story reminded me of was the story that I've once heard, well, many people have heard actually watched it on YouTube, which is in, in one of the university commencement speeches that Steve Jobs gave, he described his story of kind of, of, of his life. 
and actually one of the things that he did mention was how he dropped out of university and then decided to drop in on some classes instead rather than pursuing a certain degree and it was the exact same story he got so hooked on on design and actually particular font and, and design design aspect of, of letters and calligraphy that then he associated that that experience that knowledge that he acquired there in his design and how it got influenced, how it influenced the way that some of the, the fonts and the, 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 the design of the Max Apple Max were created as well. So there's always that connection, whether we see that or not, but I'm, I'm curious. So obviously you've, you've been in London for, for many years, you've gone through design, design is your interest. Um, but we've been talking about stuff, not necessarily design and graphic design specific as such, but we've been discussing, and that's how we connected, um, things around purpose how and and things around how design and how how we build teams and how all of that branding in, in particular for example employee branding how that impacts an organization so i'm wondering what the connection in your work is now how can that happen and what is that you see your focus yeah. on? you touch on a few interesting things here i've uh, i've seen that speech from steve jobs and the thing that very much chimed with me was one thing that he said you join the dots in hindsight um that is something I grew up with two parents who were both artists, they were singers with everything associated with that, you know, just about getting it right on the night. Um, and that's when it matters, the ups and downs, but there were also idealists and it was always follow what you really want to do. And that has been deeply instilled in me and that's what I have done. So I've always felt I'm on a path, but I can't really describe the end of the path. It just feels like it's drawing me to somewhere and that's it resonated with Steve Jobs. In a nutshell, you could say when I designed books, I interpreted stories that somebody else had written. I then become interested in the story, not as a writer, but in the creation of the story. And when I moved into to London and worked in, in a more corporate design environment, we were, you know, we were helping companies with their investor story, with their corporate story, with their branding story. And I was getting involved in how do you shape the story and then how do you shape the design out of it? And what I also had very early on, it's the question, why do you do this? You know, and where does this come from? What is the, the central point of it all? The soul, the heart, the vision, whatever you want to call that, the purpose, of course. So that question makes me a terrible small talker. Because I always go into the deep questions and some people are quite uncomfortable with that, but that is also what drives the work. And, um, that has driven me from being a designer into a strategic consultant, into a culture consultant and into the, the work that we do today, which has an element of design, but in a much broader sense, we sometimes call it business design. And at the heart of it is if you, if you look at what makes a business work. We have a model that we've developed propeller. And if you have a propeller, it usually has three blades, you can have more, but let's say it has three. And if you look at the business as a propeller, one of your blades is your strategy. Where do you want to go? What's your plans? How do you build your operations around that? But you also have another propeller and that is the culture. What is the lived experience? What is the ethos? What are the values? What, what attracts people to be here? And then you have a third blade on the propeller, and that is your brand, your communications, what you represent to the outside world. And if you want to make that business fly, quite literally, you need to turn the propeller on all three, because if you only do it on one, um, you might break it. And this, the intersection 
of your strategy, of your culture and your brand that interests me and that we're working at and on. Because what we're finding, if you go back to the 18th century and the concept of the division of labor that has led to many inventions and innovations and progress in the 20th century, it's really led to a the silos of the modern workplace. And today that's a problem because we're trying to perfect everything. We're trying to auto-tune the workers to be perfect, but we're, we're missing the bits that hold it together. And so what I'm interested in is you have a strategy, but why do so many of strategies fail? I've spoken to people and what, you know, what they often say, oh, this is the fourth CEO with a new strategy. I'll survive this one. That was what somebody told me once in an interview. And he was a middle manager, you know, he had responsibility. So you can see if you don't win these people over with you, that, well, it won't, won't happen. And too often strategies are being celebrated, champagne signed off in the end report and on the shelf. If you go one, two levels down, you know, but you mentioned the word purpose, people don't know, they, they hear the line, but they don't know what the thinking was that went behind it. And that is a big problem. It comes partly because if you, you know, the silos, you know, there's a strategic function, they have their consultants, there's the culture function, the people function, they have their consultants, they employ a value in branding, employer branding project, values project, and then there's a the marketing function, the comms function, they have their consultants and they all work in silos. So they all work on one blade of the propeller and the bit that makes it move doesn't really happen. So that's, that's the era area that we're working on. And it comes in many different ways. Sometimes, you know, people come to us with a branding problem, but we will look at that through the lens of strategy, through the lens of culture. We'll look at the aspects that we need to bring into it because on anything you need to win your people over and you do that best, not by telling them what to do, but by convincing them that what you're doing has relevance to them. And by giving them the chance to participate in it. So that is what we do. We, in our pre-recording chats, uh, promised ourselves that we're not going to go down the route of telling people what purpose is, because I've, I've had two excellent guests on this podcast before where we devoted a lot of time to purpose, where one of them was Sarah Rosenthal, the other one was Ali Moladina. And we really dug deep in some of, uh, in those two episodes into what purpose is and how it looks, what it feels like. And I'll definitely point people in that direction. So I don't want to go down that route of more what that is, how we identify that. But I'm really keen uh, to know a little bit more about your perspective of what in kind of that purpose is, because the thing that I've got from the other two interviews and that I often get is that these days, purpose, company culture, and a lot of these terms are more used like buzzwords, PR type of spin that organizations, you know, put on because it's a fancy thing to do. And I'm really keen to get your perspective on, on that from where the clients that you've worked and, and what you've noticed in the industry, what, what is, what's the situation there? How, and how can we potentially prevent our organizations going down that route? That is just something that we talk about and but otherwise it's, it's just a poster on the wall. I think that is a very, very important question. And I've, I've actually gone away from using the word purpose in the work a lot which is sad because I love the word in its true meaning, but it's being used as a way of saying, Hey, we can sell more, you know, it, 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 it's become a thing, 
accolades. It, it used to be the mission and vision. Now it's the purpose. And but the, the the thinking behind is very similar. It's essentially about manipulation. If we're really you know talking about it, deception very often. Uh, we go back to Shakespeare and King Lear and talk about the glib and oily art of speaking and purpose not. That is something that I think about a lot. We live in the era of the phrase and we're just starting to get into the era of greenwashing. We're already in it, but it's got to increase massively because the problems are so real. And, you know, for a lot of organizations, sadly still, it seems easier to carry on and to paint new colors um, out on the outside. And that is something that I deeply dislike and that I don't want to be part of. So what we're, what we're talking about often when we, when we engage, we say, what is, what are your true intentions? And it's okay to want to make money and it's okay to want to be rich. But I think what we need to get to is to a place where we're honest about that, because, um, that is the bit, it will come to the surface, you know? You, Facebook has a wonderful purpose of community and bringing people together. And everyone knows that's not the business model, you know, and it, it despairs me when, when, you know, when that happens. So I really work towards helping people be true about what they really want, whatever you want to call that. And that is the, um, that is what drives the work that we do. And the way we look at that, therefore, is when we engage, say, a customer experience project. There are some, you know, there are some true intentions. What do we really want to get out of it while we're doing this? And there are two parts that we need to look into. It's not just what is the job that needs to be done, but also what is the change that we want to help people make in their own way of dealing with what they're doing. So we're always talking about the two parallel tracks and that's the intersection of that. That's where they the interesting work. I'm really with you on the purpose of Facebook that you mentioned, and not just Facebook, but many organizations. And I think that's what is difficult for me and for a lot of people that we, there's that disconnect between the purpose and what the, the business actually does. And we know there's so much stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to uh, and how business models are run. And I think that's where people are more and more demanding uh, clarity and things to be aligned. And I know what you mean about going away from using the word purpose. It's a great word, same as the word intention and having values, but they seem to be thrown around a lot. And I, I, I read the article that you've written in, in, in relation to King, King Lear, and I, I really like that comparison. I've, I haven't personally read um, King Lear, but I think the, the you article that you've written, <laughs> it, it, I, I might do, I might do, it, it, might, it might be easier, but I do like the concept that you've, the comparison that you drew there in terms of the, the, the characters and how it relates to that purpose. And there is, the, there is that difficulty and of, of how do business avoid that? How, how do we, how do they find that alignment? Even just looking at an internal, from an internal point of view, when you've got, when a company's got a purpose and how does it rally? the people inside the organization around that? How do they build that? And what does that mean? And most of all, how do they avoid specifically that trap of we've got a purpose that we say that we, we have, but we actually don't live it. What's, what's your take on that? I was reflecting as you're, as you're mentioning this, and I think it's the difficult work that starts now, you know, we've gone through the branding 
your era in the 90s. You know, we're all about one word, one big idea. This is what everything defines. And it's not a logo, it's a big thing. You know, it's it's an ideology. Now, okay, it in we're still at the same level in some ways by saying that's now purpose and, 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 and particularly we use it. I think what it comes down to is what, how we're trying to go about it, you know, because in a lot of the language, even how you're describing it, there's still a sentiment. How do we get our people along? It's that implies that somebody sits at the levers of power and trying to steer and influence the little minions who are walking around. And now I need to try and get to, to their heads. You know, so that they really want it. There's something very manipulative about that. And what doesn't change is the sense of somebody sitting there at the top and controlling. And I think that is an outdated model. Now, that is, you know, it, I appreciate it's very hard if you run a 150,000 people organization. Somehow you have to have some control. But it's the ethos with which you're approaching that. And I think, you know, the question is, well, how do one people to participate. Not everyone wants to have the power, so, but people have an innate a desire to be part of something. So now I have a choice. I can tell them, this is what you're part of. And isn't that great? Or I can say, this is what I believe in. How does this relate to what you're believing in? And I know that's, that sounds a bit abstract perhaps, but from, this comes back to what are your intentions? Are we willing? to engage in a way that other people have space to come to the table. There's still a hierarchy. There still needs to be some, you know, decision-making. I'm not talking about sort of basic democracy and everyone has an equal say. I don't think that works, but there's a big difference between caring about the people and trying to control them. Interestingly, a a discussion that plays out right now and do we go back to the office or not i remember at the beginning of the pandemic we we had a round table with people from the charity sector from finance from engineering all ceos and leaders of business or leading functions of business and we asked the question so what's going to change and the one thing whatever sector they were in everyone said we don't want to go back to the olden ways presentee is you know, those kind of things the gossip, the kind of all, all the office politics. Now, I'm sure you can't avoid them altogether. But what is interesting is we now had 18 months to reflect on it, and, and where is the conversation going? Now, we do. You know, I think it's likely that the hybrid model is there to stay in one shape or another. But one thing that I've noticed in the whole debate about going back to the office, I don't hear enough reflection of what I find, which is I love being back with my team. I deeply love being back in the same space and the energy that happens from being in the same room. I did my first business trip abroad since March, 2020, two weeks ago. And boy, did I love it. <laughs> I didn't actually miss all the flying around, which is not a good thing in the first place. And and, and so I don't think I want to go back to doing as much of that as I did, but going back, seeing something different, arriving in a different country, going and seeing a site with a pretty big plant that we visited, meeting the people in their own environment, you know, getting a sense of the place. It gives you something that you cannot recreate by a screen. It's just not possible. I remember the first time that we 
that we set here in, in Waterloo in our studio, where we, we said, okay, let's all come in. Okay, long commute. We've all gotten, you know, used to commuting from the bedroom to the top floor, wherever you, you're working at home. Um, we'll come in. And we had a day sitting in front of the white wall, you know, getting things done, working things out and so on. And I, I felt so happy. So it's quite funny. So then the question is, okay, how can I create a working environment where people feel happy? Because then you don't have to have that conversation about, do we all want everyone back? That's a question of control, really. You know, it's easier to control people if they're all captured, you know, captured. I think one thing that we've learned is productivity doesn't go down by people working from home. I think that myth has been thoroughly busted. Not a problem. You know, in trend, my own productivity has probably gone up. But I've also, you know, we've seen that people have worked a hell of a lot more hours in the last 18 months than in previous times. That is those who had a job, you know, so mostly office workers. But so all of that is not necessary. You don't need the office environment to control people. If you're motivated, they'll do it by themselves. So there's something to be celebrated of working together. And I think that is underused and underappreciated. And I think that is something that we need to think about as a working culture. And that is certainly something that we work with when, when we do work. What is the, how do you get the energy that comes out of different people working together into something that's greater than the individual contributions? I think you're right that a lot of myths have been abolished as a result of obviously what, what's been going on in the world for the past 18 months and gave different perspectives, reprioritized certain things. Thank you very much for calling me out on how I phrase the, the, the phrase, the question, because I think you, 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 you're quite right in that there, as, as you were um, giving the answer, I did reflect on that and, and you're right. There is, um, although the mindset is right, it's about building communities. It's about getting people to follow others based on what they believe and, and creating groups as such within organizations. And if that is possible within organizations, it's still the wording. It's still the kind of how we convey that to, to the people around us. And I think that's an important piece that sometimes the most genuine of actions fall short because of how it's been presented, how it's been conveyed in the words that have been used, or maybe the by, by who they were delivered. That's also sometimes the case, right? Within the organization. In terms of the, the uh, reprioritizing certain things for us, what's important for us as individuals, as teams. Yeah, I th I've, I've been seeing that too, that organizations have noticed certain things that are better, some things that are worse. But then I still find organizations that, although they've noticed that they want people back in the office, they, they just want to go back to that old model. And it's, that still surprises me. And I wonder how, how far that's going to go and whether this is separating the good organizations and progressive organizations from the organizations who cling on to the past a little bit too much. And what obviously what the impacts on, on people is going to be, because being back around people in the same space, couldn't agree more. The energy that you get out of it is, is immense. And even introverted people who don't like being that much around others, and you know, it can be a little bit draining off on them. They still want that as an element. They very, very rarely do they meet somebody who says, no, completely five days a week from home is ideal for me. There's always an element that, you know, maybe once a, once a week, twice a month, 
everybody always has that bit of, of a need to be around, uh, around others. And I think that's a, a fascinating concept in itself as well. You mentioned a lot of, obviously, around development and where things are going in, in the future in terms of the skills and we've got the separation, the segmentation that we've got going on. What do you think is the, the future of uh, soft skills as such? Because I know that you've got some views in terms of the soft skills, but as well as potentially the development of AI going forwards into the future and how that might impact how, how we do work and how, how work, is, work is perceived. Mm, that's an interesting question. The question that it comes to, uh, this may be a little bit out there, but I, I, did you read the book Sapiens? No, I have um, not. I, I have really not. Have I know about um, it. I've heard a lot about it from other people, but I haven't got down to, to reading it now. If you, there's a good rule sometimes if you don't want to read the whole tomb, just read the end bit. If you said something at the end about the future, it says, the question is, what do we want to want? Which I think is a really profound question because we've got choice. We got a choice. We can act in whichever way you want, you know, we're free as human beings. I mean, within everyone has constraints, but essentially, you know, as human race, we're pretty free. And can he say, well, so what do we want to want? We can just go down. Yep, technology will save everything. Let's do technology, technology, technology. And it comes back to what I said earlier. We're trying to perfect everything. And the question is, okay, what's the value of that? Perfection in itself, does that have that value? And for me, it comes back to humanity. What kind of life do we want? What kind of things do we want to value? And um, that plays out in endless, minute interactions. <laughs> Um, as well in the big grand themes, you know, yes, climate change, what do we want? You know, do we want to try and are we willing to do our bit to change, you know, to avoid the worst or do we want to see it out as long as we can, knowing that we in this country, for instance, are probably not going to be as badly affected as many others. So who cares? That's a pretty deep thing that we've gotten into here. But I, so what, what holds the future for me, what I want to be for and what I'm trying to help create is a place where people come together and create something together that it's beneficial for all of that. So um, I hope that doesn't sound too soft. I don't, this can be in a very commercial context, but there's something in humanity and the fact that we're humans, that is wonderfully magical for me. And I, maybe I'm old style, but I think that is the thing that I'm most interested in. I'm, I'm fascinated by AI. I'm fascinated by technology. I'm surrounded by it and I use it. So I'm, I'm all for it, but it's it, the thing that drives me is the connections between people. And I think Coming back to the workplace, I don't think there's anything more fascinating and amazing than a group of people coming together and turning their intentions, their hands onto a common goal. And that is so powerful. You, know, you probably know the Margaret Mead um, quote and famous anthropologist who said, men never underestimate the power of a small group of committed citizens to change the world because indeed there has nothing ever been that hasn't, that has done change like that. That was me quoting freely, not quite as eloquently as she put it, but that sense of what we're capable of, if we come together, is the key driver in, in what we do. And that's what we try and help organizations get a little bit of. 
or a little bit more if they can. But I think that for me is the future of work. And do you think there's an element of the combination of how AI is going to be used in the, in the workplace and how it's going to impact us uh, that we should be a little bit more mindful to so that it doesn't go potentially in the wrong direction? Tricky one. Um, I don't think I can answer that in a profound way because it's not something that I'm um, spending a huge amount of time with. I do think it comes back to what do we want to want and are we willing to take responsibility? Now we're talking about very, very big brushstrokes, but can you do as an individual? We can't change whether some government will decide to, to put a lot of uh, investment into, I don't know, drones and what have you. But there are things that I think we should be aware of. So we talked about Facebook. I was talking um, I was listening to the radio the other day and there was a woman came up, a mother, who told of her despair in trying to get her daughter who had agreed to it off Instagram and Instagram just wouldn't delete the account. And she had been, had some horrible mental health issues as a result of some bullying and they just couldn't get it, get away from it. So there are small things with technology, with our worshipping of technology even. And that we can think about, you know, and sometimes I had my, my kids, I tried to keep them away for the first few years of their lives from screens. They're now still more savvy than I ever will be on screen. So they, they caught up very quickly, but I wanted to give them some space to explore the wonder of the world. And it's fascinating. You can read that every now and again, how many tech, you know, leaders do the same for their children. So I think. A conscious dealing with the things that are around that's, that's something that I think is important. What do you want to want? Mm. And do you have the, the courage to at least take a step towards it? You know, on our own, we can't do all that much, but we still can take responsibility for ourselves. The thing that I often find is that we often, of course, vilify technology, we vilify AI, we vilify social media and, and all of that. With all everything that's going behind the scenes that we don't see in terms of potential manipulations and, and things like that, the business models, the purposes that are just a PR stints. Be, beyond all of that, it's still down to us and how we use the tools because everything that we use are merely tools. It's us who give us them the, the power. It's us who are in that, hooked into the, into the device. But we've got the power to literally switch it off and put it down and disconnect and do something else. So I think it's, it's important, as you said, that consciousness and that awareness of that, of that dynamic that we've got more influence over, over it than we realize. Recently, something came, came back to me that I've uh, watched probably about a couple of years ago, and that was a, a series on Netflix about the Unib uh, Unabomber in, in the States, I think mm -hmm. it was in the 60s and 70s. Um, and not condoning obviously what, what was done there and, uh, and all the, all the attacks as a result, but I found the manifesto that he wrote, quite intriguing. Again, staying away from, from, from all this of the brutality that, that the person stood for, but the manifesto is in, in, intriguing in itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, aware enough of extremism and, and, and some of those beliefs. So, but, but what you do, you make me think of something because we're talking about some very big picture themes and some very high ground issues, if you like, you know? And I'm very conscious that it's easy to talk about big 
and it's not so easy to, to live them out in practice, both in personal lives, as well as in the workplace, you know, you can all talk about, yeah, we need to talk to people, but how do I do this when I've got 10,000 of them? I don't even know them, and I haven't got the time to So I think we need to acknowledge that. I also, you make me think, I don't know why we come, we had Shakespeare here. So let's, let's use somebody else from my home country, um, Germany, which is Goethe. You probably have heard about Faust, which is one of those pieces that are very worth reading. There is a sentence in there that makes me think, and that says, es irrt der Mensch, solange er strebt which I need Google Translate for, despite my <laughs> 20 years of the UK to really translate. I think it's, you can probably translate, you know, you can, you'll still be wrong whilst you're striving for the right thing. And that is a wonderful human insight as well. Where I'm getting to is, is kind of, you know, we always, we write manifestos, we write our thoughts down, we write philosophy and so on. And what we're trying to do, we're, we're bringing things to a point to certainty. And I think there isn't much certainty because you can, there, there can be certainty in one moment and, um, but the next moment you might find actually, I didn't go deep enough or actually I've forgotten about something. And that, so I find, you know, people who are too certain of things are dubious. And I think, you know, any sort of simple ideology, you know, any has that, you know, clear certainty, which I can see play out in, in our world a lot right now on social media and so on. And we talk a lot about how the gray zone is, it's, you know, not being acknowledged because everything's either black or white. I, I'm, I'm all for gray because I think there's a lot of it and gray can be a beautiful color. I think it's hard to live with uncertainty if it comes at you left, right, and center. But I think if you can embrace it and listen to yourself, you can weather it quite well. And that gives you huge amounts of opportunity to change yourself, to change the way you work, to change the way you have your teamwork, to change things. Because, you know, it requires openness. We talked about control. You know, it, well, where does that need to control come from? That's an interesting question. Maybe you need to have a podcast with a psychologist. <laughs> I'm not an expert at that, but it's a question that I spend a great deal, you know, thinking about because often in our work that, you know, what are the politics of it? Who needs to be happy with it in order to make a change happen? Those are the blockers and that comes back to control. It often comes back to the fear. I give me a very simple example, to, just to try to bring it back to the ground a little bit here. You know, waterfall versus agile as a way of working. I don't think, and I'm not sure whether we need to explain the differences, but you know, agile is one of those buzzwords. It sounds cool. We're all getting together, doing things and, you know, it's collaborative. I believe collaboration very much, but agile has a huge amount of uncertainty because the whole point of agile is to, to develop as you go rather than plan the end and then work towards the end in a straight line with a straight waterfall. So that has huge potential. And I love doing it this way. You need an element of control. You need to be clear as to what you want to achieve in order to evaluate whether you're on the right path. But you, there's a level of openness that you allow in this process to react to things as they happen. And I think that principle 
you know, just to bring it back to, into working culture, you know, of openness and not tying things down all the time. You need to have some, some rocks in, in the, in the whiskey before you pour it in. You don't want to plump the rocks in afterwards. It gets messy, but embracing that, that sense of the gray zone, the uncertainty and the potential that lies within that I wish we could do more of, because I think, you know, coming back to what's the future, who knows what it is, but if we embrace that part, it could be quite exciting. It, it definitely can, definitely can. You're right that agile is a buzzword and having word in the IT industry for, for, for a little while, I've noticed that very much. Surprisingly, unsurprisingly, agile started with a manifesto as well from the, from the creators. And it's actually, uh, really interesting to listen to the founder, the founders, however you want to call them, the people who kind of came up with the writers of the manifesto, reviewing the state and how agile is being used or misused actually in a lot of cases, there's a couple of videos from their talks that are quite, quite interesting in how things have gone in the other direction. Thank you very much for bringing it down, down to the ground. I've got a feeling we went so high up because you did mention a propeller that we, that, that's kind of how you get things off the ground. So I think we sort of come in uh, full circle. I'm curious what you've got going on in the next few months mm -hmm. that you're working on any kind of interesting mm -hmm. projects, stuff that is really exciting that you're really looking for. Yeah. Thank you for, for going on that flight with me. I think we had another uncertainty that I didn't know where that was going, but I think we've landed. And I will say as an addendum, I, I think that manifestos have a great use in putting something down. It's, you know, it's the third generation where it gets troublesome if you don't develop it. You know, the original intention is usually a great one. Um, it's a funny one. I sometimes get asked, what's your ideal client? And I never have an answer to it because I, we don't have somebody who say, oh, I want to work in this sector or this company or whatever. It does come down to people and that's how I've built this business. It, in the end, it's driven by relationships with people who have a certain vision, a certain problem, and they say, can you help me with this? And we're quite open because of the, you know, it's a systemic view that we take culture, strategy, brand, and you have to look at all of it to solve one of them. And you can look at one of them to affect every, everything of that. So, and that is somewhat reflected in the things that we're doing. So we're helping a former B2B brand at the moment in the manufacturing sector to, to instill customer centric viewpoint, which is cool. It is a real big change. How do you get you know, from somebody who knows the engineering processes to somebody who actually listens to the customer and do that with 50,000 people? So that's a project that we're starting. We're breaking that down in pilots to, to work with people from different regions and bring them together to start with, to get a shared understanding. There may even be a manifesto involved. <laughs> if it's written by the people involved, they can be extremely powerful. That's one thing. We're helping a, a different business in the fashion sector um, who are the real believers in sustainability, which is another really interesting think there's so much talk. We talked about greenwashing. Okay. How, how do you cut through when you actually believe in this stuff and when you actually <laughs> mean what you say, and when you actually have proof and when of that, when there are so many, you say exactly the same things without meaning it. So that's an interesting communications challenge that we're working on. And how do you do that and have everyone have a piece of ownership of that? I'm writing a book. 
run out of time on the propeller and the implications and sharing some of the practices that we're doing. And because I think at the end of the day, it's an idea that will be more powerful, the more people will use it. So the one thing is to explain it. And also you learn a lot by explaining it, including about the things that you haven't quite worked out yet, which I'm finding as I'm writing the book. So those are some of the things that we're doing right now. Yeah. And where can people sort of follow some of the stuff that you do, especially the elements of the, the parts of the book? So where if people do want to find out when the book goes out, whenever that might be, or how, how yeah. it's progressing, is there uh, a place yeah. that is best for people to, to, to find you? I think the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I have an unusual name, so there won't be too many others. <laughs> if you just Google Gil or, or LinkedIn Gil Marvin, then you'll find me very happy to connect. And that's also where, you know, most of my, my thinking is published, whether obviously some of it goes in magazines as you've, as you've read, but usually um, that's the, the central point where it comes together. So, um, very happy to have conversations or be challenged on things you got, that's how you learn. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I'll encourage everybody to, or anyone to reach out to you if, if you want to challenge Gil Gilmer's views or, or want to go on a, on a high flying conversation and, <laughs> and challenge some ideas and, and bounce some ideas around. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yes, we bounced around a little bit, but as we, as we did say before we pressed record that probably is going to end up this way but thank you very much for kind of coming along on that journey with me and thank you very much for your time thank you it's been an absolute pleasure it's me again just one more thing before you take off head over to human.pm forward slash we got this that's all one word where you can find this and previous episodes show notes suggest a guest or topic ask a question or join the community of other listeners until next time